Good morning. Happy New Year to you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1304, 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to look at one verse of Scripture, and it's really going to serve as a launching pad this morning. And I want to speak to all the kids for just a second. So kids, if you look this way at Pastor Darren, I know that you have coloring pages in your lap and pencils and all of those fun things. But the, what I'm going to talk about today, you're going to be able to follow along easily with. And so parents, I would encourage you to keep your Bible open in front of your kids point the verses out that I talk about to them so that they can follow along, and I think they'll have no trouble uh, following what I talk about this morning, okay? 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to read verse 13, and this is what the Word of God says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. For the last few weeks, as part of my devotional time, I've been uh, reading a few pages a day out of a book of biographical sketches of old preachers that goes all the way back to the 1800s. And one of the sketches that I read this past week uh, the pastor was described as a man whose heart was constantly thinking about the church and about the people of God. And he went on, the author did in this sketch of this pastor, to describe how that manifested in both his personal life and his private life and his public life. And I could really resonate with that sketch because that's an apt description of my life. My heart, my thoughts, my energies are constantly thinking about the church and about the people of God. And that's why I've selected this verse this morning to begin the sermon. I don't have to tell you that we live in uncertain times. And we live in an uncertain world. Uh, some have described this world as being tissue paper thin. And I think that's an apt analogy for the days that we're living in. And if the events of the last two years have not convinced you of the uncertainty of life, if the events of the last month have not convinced you of the uncertainty of life, I'm not sure what will. But I want to remind you this morning that even though we live in an uncertain world, we have a very certain God. The God of the Bible, the God that you and I have gathered to worship today, speaks with certainty. And He wants His people to live with certainty. He wants His people to live with courage. He wants His people to live with confidence. He wants His people to live with boldness 
and certainty. And we've been challenged in that area of our Christian living these last two years. We have been tempted to live in fear and worry and anxiety. We've been tempted to live in the realm of the uncertainty of the world when we live under a very certain, confident, courageous God. And I want you to know this morning that the only way that you and I will ever be able to live courageously, confidently, and certainly in this uncertain world is to know for sure where we stand with God. And John, when he wrote the book of 1 John, he gave his thesis statement in 1 John chapter 5 and 13. And he said, I've written all of these things that I've written to you for one reason. That you would know certainty, confidence, that you have eternal life. That's the purpose for the whole book of 1 John. And so my thesis to you this morning is simply this. That the God of certainty wants you and I to know for sure for certain that we have eternal life. And there's no better way to begin a new year than to examine this area of our lives and make sure it's settled. And that's what I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking to you about this morning. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1197. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read a verse of scripture out of Romans chapter 3 that really serves as a summary for the entirety of the first three chapters in the book of Romans. If you want to summarize what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and what he will write in Romans chapter 3, It can all be summarized in this one verse that we're going to look at. It's Romans 3.23. It's a familiar verse. And it's the summary of what Paul is writing for three chapters. And this is what he writes in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you want to have certainty about where you stand with God, you need to understand clearly the problem that Paul is describing for us in this verse. It is a universal problem. Paul, when he writes Romans 3.23, he is writing to everyone who has ever lived. He says, for all. It is universal. It means that you are included in the all. And Paul is telling us that this problem is universal in its scope and it affects every single person that has ever lived. And the problem is simply this. It is sin. He says, for all have sinned. And that word sinned is used in the past tense. It means that we've sinned in the past, and our sin in the past goes with us into the future, that it affects every area of our life. And really what he is teaching us with this word 
is it takes us all the way back to the very first book in our Bible, the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned against him. And Genesis chapter 3 records their disobedience and their sin. And here's what Paul is teaching us about Adam and Eve's disobedience and sin. Adam and Eve represented the entire human race. And as Paul will teach us in the book of Romans, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell in disobedience to God, by representing the whole human race, every person that's ever been born through the line of Adam and Eve, and let me do the math for you on that, that's everyone, we all trace back to Adam and Eve, because they fell in sin, and we all trace back to them, every single one of us have sinned. We've sinned. It's a past action that continues into the future. It means that you were born in sin. It means that you chose to sin. It means that you continue to choose to sin. It means that you will continue to sin until you die. For all have sinned. And you say, well, what is sin? Well, sin is an archery term. And so if you could just picture in your mind for a minute a big bullseye right here. Let's just pretend there's a big bullseye right there. Okay? And you are back here. And you've got a bow and you've got an arrow. And your goal is to get the arrow in the center of the bullseye. And so you've practiced for a while. And you've got your bow and you've got your arrow. And you pull the bow back and you release the arrow. And it's looking good. It's, it's headed towards the bullseye, and then it fizzles out and ends up in the dirt. That's sin. You fell short of the target, and the target was the bullseye. Well, in the context of sin, Paul says in this verse that you've fallen short of the glory of God. You've fallen short of the majesty of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God. Sin has marred you. Sin has tainted you. And because sin has marred you and sin has tainted you, it's caused you to fall short of God's standard of holiness and right living and goodness. You were born in sin and sin made you fall short of God's standard. Now, here's what you need to understand this morning. God is the one who gets to set the standard, not you. After all, he created you. Would uh, the one who was created say to the creator how things are supposed to go? Well, a lot of people think that, but that's not the way it works. God sets the standard, and God's standard is perfection, and because you've sinned, you've fallen short of his standard. That's literally what it means to be a sinner. And so if you're tracking with me, here's what this means. Every single person in this room, young and old, were born in sin. They've carried sin with them through their whole life. And their sin has caused them to fall short of God's standard of holiness and perfection. And if you'll notice in verse 23 of Romans 3, 
This universal condition that we've all sinned, it is unchanging. This phrase, fall short, means that it is present tense action. It means that you continue to fall short. You say, oh, I don't know about that, Pastor. I continue to fall short? Yes, you do. How many New Year's resolutions did you make? And how many do you think you'll have completed 364 days from now? No, we continue to struggle in sin. It's not that we just fell short once. We continue to fall short. This problem of sin is universal. This problem of sin is un changing and friends that's why we need a savior there's not a single one of us who can deal with this problem of sin on our own now here's here's my simple question for you kids are you listening look at pastor Darren are you listening do you believe what this verse says do you believe you're a sinner that you were born in sin that you continue to live in sin and then your sin causes you to fall short of God's holiness and perfection it's true of every one of us do you believe it or do you think you're the exception do you think you're the one it doesn't apply to I think God is so certain when he says all he means all so that's the problem. Now let me tell you what this problem produces. Go to the right in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1199. Romans chapter 6. And we're going to look at verse 23 in Romans chapter 6. Got it? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's what Paul is teaching us in this verse. He's teaching us that our problem of sin produces things in our lives. <clears throat> and in this verse, Paul contrasts death and life. He contrasts what we earn and what we're given. He shows us where sin leads, and he shows us the gift of salvation. And he tells us in verse 23 of Romans 6 that because of our sin, we deserve a payment. Now, everybody loves payday, right? You love payday because you get something for all of the hard work that you've done. And that's why we long for payday, because we get what is due us. And Paul says in this verse, don't miss it, that because we're sinners, we deserve death. The Bible teaches that sin produces death. And so if you go all the way back to Adam and Eve again, when they fell in sin, they began to die physically and they instantaneously died spiritually. And what was true for them is true for you and me. The moment that we are born into this world physically, we begin to die physically because of sin. And the moment that we're born into this world physically, we are born dead 
spiritually. Because our sin, if you remember, separates us from the holiness of God. And because God sets the standard of holiness and rightness, he says our sin deserves death. We deserve to die for our sin. That's what our sin leads to. It leads to physical death, and it leads to ultimate spiritual death in a literal place called heaven where we would spend eternity forever with Satan and his demons separated from God only to experience his wrath for all eternity. That's the death that he is talking about here. <clears throat> but now my favorite, one of my favorite words in the Bible is in this verse. Do you see it? Look at it again. 623. But. That's one of the best words in your Bible. Do you know that? Because it usually comes after something bad to transition to something good. And that's exactly what happens in this verse. The bad news is we all deserve to die for our sins. The good news is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve to die for our sins. Sin pays its wages, which is death. But God made a way for us to experience not death, but life. And notice how he described it. He said it is a free gift. And the word that he uses there literally means grace. It is a grace gift. And if you know anything about grace, you understand that grace is getting something you don't deserve. And that's what Paul is teaching us. We deserve to die for our sin, but God loves us so much that he gives us a gift, a gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ, as a gift of grace. Now listen to me. This is really important. This is where so many people get off track. If it's a gift, you can't do anything to earn it. Because if you can earn it, it no longer is a gift. It's free. It costs you nothing, but it costs God's son everything. And it's a grace gift. That's why Paul will say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You, can, you could never miss a Sunday going to church and still not have eternal life. You could do all kinds of good deeds and works in your community. You could be the best son or daughter to your parents and obey them all the time, instantly, and still not have the gift of salvation. You can't do anything to earn it. You have to receive it. It's a gift. See, and what makes a gift a gift is that you receive it. So if I had a $100 bill here and I said, Pastor Jay, there's a $100 bill. It's my gift to him, but it wouldn't be his until he received it. See? And that's what's true about salvation. You can know about it. You can go to church and be surrounded by it. You can live in a home where it's constantly talked about and you're constantly directed towards it, but until you receive it, it's not yours. 
It's a gift. All right, so you tracking with me? All of us got a problem. Aren't you glad you came to church to find out you had a problem? All of us got a problem. And this problem that we all have produces things in our life. It produces physical death and spiritual death. But God loved us so much that he gave us a free gift of grace through his son so that we wouldn't have to die because of our sin. Now let me show you another verse. Go back to the left in your Bible to Romans chapter 5 in verse 8. Romans chapter 5 in verse 8. Here's that word but again. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God showed. God demonstrated. And, and the word literally means he continues to demonstrate his love for us. And here's the question you need to ask. How does he demonstrate his love for us? Through the gift of his son. That's why the most famous verse in the Bible says, For God so loved the world, he gave his son. So every time you see a cross, every time you see a steeple in a church, God is reminding you of how he has demonstrated his love to you. If you ever wonder if God loves you, all you have to do is look to the cross. The cross is God's demonstration of his love for you. And he continues to demonstrate that love. How did he do it? Because Christ died for you. It's a great exchange. Are you with me? You deserve to die, but God loved you so much that instead of punishing you with death, he punished his son with your death. That's why Paul says in that verse that he died for us. He died in our place. That the cross on which Jesus died, to be theologically accurate, is your cross. You deserve to be nailed there. You deserve to be hung in shame on that cross. But God loved you so much that he sent his son out of the glory and the splendor of heaven to come and dwell among us and to live on this earth a life of perfect purity. A life that had not one ounce of sin in it. A life that you could never live and I could never live to die a death that every single one of us deserved to die. He died in your place. And that's how God is demonstrating his love to you. When you could do nothing to save yourself, God made it possible for you to be saved through his son and his death on the cross. And friends, this is good news because a lot of us have baggage. A lot of us struggle and wonder in the quietness of our lives if God really does love us. 
if God really does accept us. And I want you to know that when you receive the free gift of eternal life through God's Son, Jesus Christ, you never, ever have to wonder or ask again if you're accepted or loved by God because God could not accept you or love you any more than He's accepted and loved you in His Son, Jesus, and what He did on the cross for you. You're accepted and you're loved through Christ. And He's made it known to you. And you say, Pastor, well, this is all great information. I understand it. It's clear. What am I supposed to do with it? Well, go to Romans chapter 10. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Kids, you still hanging with me? All right. You look like you are. See some heads nodding. Let's look in verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or made right with God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. These two verses tell us what we need to do in response to everything that we've just heard, what we need to do about our problem of sin, what we need to do about our problem of death, what we need to do about God's demonstration of his love for us through his son. It tells us, verse 9, that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To receive the gift of eternal life, Paul is very clear and very simple. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The word confess means to say the same thing that God says. And in the context, here's what it means. You say the same thing that God says about your sin. You say the same thing that God says about your punishment for sin. You say the same thing that God says about his provision for your sin through his son, Jesus. You confess that to God with your mouth. You say the same thing that God says. And you confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, I need to say something about that because this is another area where we all get off the rails. A lot of us grew up in an age of church where we were taught that you just confess Jesus as Savior. You just confess Him as Savior, and Him being your Lord comes later. Now, look in your Bible again. You know that your pastor likes to do this. I don't want you to think that I'm making something up. Look in your Bible at verse 9. And what does it say? Does it say, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Savior? No. No, no. It says you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. We've already established that he's your Savior. He died for you. But he's not just your Savior. He's your Lord. You say, well, what does that mean, Pastor? That means he gets to tell you what to do. And you obey him. Now, everybody wants to sign up, or most everybody, I should say, for Jesus to be their Savior. But we still like to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And you know why we like to do that? Because we're sinners. 
And that's what sinners like to do. And this verse says, when you receive Jesus as your Savior, you confess him as your Lord. You are acknowledging that he has the right and the authority over your life to tell you how to live and what to do. And this is really important because you'll sign up for easy believism and confess him as your Savior, and then there'll be no life change in you. And you'll think that you're right with God and everything's good and you keep on living the way you've always lived and yet you claim that Jesus has saved you. And the reason is because maybe you've never confessed him as your Lord. Right? So you confess him as your Lord. You say the same thing that God says about Jesus. That you're a sinner. That you deserve to die for your sin that God gave you the gift of his son so that you could have eternal life. You confess him as your Lord. And then look at what he says next. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, now notice again, I, I want you to look for yourself in your Bible. Believe in your mind. Believe in your mind. Mm -mm. Believe in your heart, the seat of your affection. You can believe all kinds of right things about Jesus and never take it into your heart. Your heart is the seat of your affection and your emotion that you understand maybe for the first time in your life this simple story about Christ and what he's done for us. And it affects you in your heart, in the seat of your whole life, in all of your affections. That's what he's talking about. You believe in your heart that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You believe in your heart that Jesus left heaven and he came to live on earth. You believe in your heart that for 33 years he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. You believe in your heart that he died on a cross for you. You believe in your heart that he was put in a tomb. You believe in your heart that three days later he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven and he's seated by the right hand of the Father making intercession for you right now and you believe in your heart that one day he's going to split the eastern sky and come back you believe those things in your heart that's what it means look at the text that's what it means for him to be your savior that God raised him from the dead that's how you know Jesus did what he claimed to do God raised him from the dead, and when God raised him from the dead, he accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. And notice what the text says. You will be saved. You will be saved. There's certainty in that, isn't there? You might be saved. You hope to be saved. If the good outweighs the bad, it all might work out in the end. If I'm just a good person and have all kinds of religious practices, I'll be saved. Is that what that says? No, no. Friends, that complicates the gospel. What I'm trying to teach you this morning is it's really that simple. The gospel is really that simple. You confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart and you will be saved. It's that simple. Don't try to complicate it. Look at verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified or is made right with God. Right? We're, we're separated from God by our sins, but when we confess and believe, we're made right with God, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us 
and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's, it's really this simple. I want you to think about it like this. It's really this simple. It's as simple as the ABCs. A, you admit that you're a sinner. B, you believe that you deserve to die for your sin and that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die in your place. C, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And D, you have a new direction for living. I'm going to show you how that works in just a second. Okay? A, B, C. It's really that simple. Now, let me show you one final verse in Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's, it's universal, just like the problem was. For all have sinned. Universal, right? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, it's universal. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that you repeat a prayer after the pastor. It doesn't say that you say the so-called sinner's prayer that is nowhere in your Bible, by the way. You know what it says? It says, if you call on the name of the Lord, if you cry out to God and ask him to save you through his son, you will be saved. It is certainty. Certainty. You don't have to wonder about that. You don't have to hope that it's true. It is true if you'll do it. And you know what my experience has been? <laughs> when someone really understands it, and you s say to them, do you want to be saved? And they say yes, and then you say back to them, then say what's in your heart and what you're thinking to God. You don't need me to tell you what to say. You say what's happening in your life. And every time I've asked that question and had them to do that, do you know what they do? Romans 10, 9 and 10 on their own. Because it's coming from their heart. It's not a manipulation. It's not a game. It's not fire insurance. It's real. And that's the difference. Now, I'm almost finished. I want to show you two more passages. So go with me to the right to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 17. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. I'll read it as soon as I hear the pages stop. Chapter 5, verse 17. All right? You ready? This is a verse to underline in your Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you know what Paul is teaching us in this verse? That when you come to Christ by faith, doing just what Paul said in Romans, you become a new creation. Your life changes. You, you have a different direction. 
You were living for yourself. You were living for sin. You were living for your own desires, and now you're living for God. You have a desire to live the way God tells you to live. Your life has changed. I'll say it to you this way. This is an easy way to remember it. If your life's never been changed, you don't know Christ. It's that simple. I grew up in a Christian home where it was mandatory. If I enjoyed food and clothes and a roof over my head, I would be up dressed a certain way and ready to go to church, non-negotiable. And the day I didn't like that, I could find my own place to live. But that didn't make me a Christian. I grew up around the church. It's what I've known my whole life. But can I tell you this morning that when God changed me through his son, I developed a love for his church that I never had before. I developed a love for the people of God. I developed a hunger and a thirst and a desire for God's word. God so changed me, he changed the whole direction of my life. There, I haven't told this part of my story for a long time, but my first two years of college, I drove my parents nuts. Do you know how many times I was in the advisor's office changing my major because nothing stuck, nothing was the right fit? And it wasn't until God changed me that all the pieces began to fit and he took a timid, shy boy who would hide in the corner to stand up with some kind of boldness and courage to say hard things. And only God can do that. And that's just one example of how he's changed me. And the reason why I'm telling you that part of the story this morning, friends, is so that you realize that if you've not been changed, I'm not saying you've got to look like me, That would be scary if this whole room was full of people like me. I'm not suggesting that. But I am saying that Christ should make some sort of difference in your life. And if he hasn't, you might be deceiving yourself this morning into thinking that you are a new creation in him. Because everyone, listen, everyone that Jesus saves gets changed in some form. They do. You know what has been a great litmus test for me? Teenagers, you want to know if you're really a Christian? Ask your parents what they think. Husband, do you want to know if you're really a Christian? Ask your wife what she thinks. She's the one that sees you behind closed doors. She knows what's real. Wives, you want to know if you're really a Christian? Ask your husbands. They know. All right, I told you two passages. Here's the last one, and I promise to stop. I think maybe I should come down on the floor more often. You all stay awake down here. I'm kidding. You do an awesome job staying awake for very long sermons. Matthew chapter 7. So go back to the left, the very first book in the New Testament. I'm going to end with this. 
I'm going to read verses 21 to 23. And this is another famous passage of Scripture. You've probably heard it before. I pray that some of you might hear it for the first time. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus is finishing his Sermon on the Mount, by the way, in this passage. And as he comes to the end of it, he, he gives uh, section after section about eternity and about final judgment and about the way people are living their lives. And this is what he says. This is one of the most shocking passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. Not everyone says to me, Lord, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And when, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus describes a scene on the last day of final, final judgment where there will be some people who will stand before him to be judged and he will condemn them to eternal death and punishment in hell. And Jesus says that they will respond to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Here's what I know, church. On that day, there's going to be people who are going to stand before Jesus and they're going to say, I was a good person. I've shown you today that none of us with integrity can say that. There are people who are going to stand before Jesus on that day and they're going to say, I was a faithful church member. I served my church in all of these ways. I gave all of this money. I did all of these good things for the community. And Jesus is going to say, with certainty, I never knew you. That will be a shocking day. I don't want that to be the experience of one person who comes to church in this place. That's why I've talked to you today about what I've talked to you about. The world that we're living in is going to get harder. And it's going to cost a lot to be a Christian. And if you are not ready with certainty, with courage, you won't pay the cost. Do you know this morning that Jesus is your Savior? Do you know that if you breathed your last breath today, you'd spend eternity in heaven with Him? If God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven if you would answer that question with any other answer than because I've trusted Jesus to be my Savior, your answer is lacking. My prayer is to be to you what my dad was to me. My dad 
would make a 20-minute drive to church every Sunday morning. And he always cut through a certain neighborhood. And he thought it would save him five minutes. So he'd cut through that neighborhood to save some time. Because my mom was usually making everybody late. If you want to know the real reason. (laughs) And he would always come down this hill to a stop sign. I can picture the hill and the stop sign in my mind. And he would always make a ride at the stop sign. And never a week went by that my dad didn't say this when he got to the stop sign. You know, son, the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life is trusting Jesus to be your Savior. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And I'm saying to you, children, I'm saying to you, teenagers, I'm saying to you adults. I'm saying to you senior adults. I've just done two senior adult funerals in the last three weeks. Eternity comes fast. And it's long. Do you know with certainty that Jesus has saved you? And if you can't say yes to that with certainty today, Romans 10, 13. For whoever would call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And right there in your pew where you're seated, you don't need me to repeat some prayer to you. If you really want to know Jesus as your Savior, you cry out to him. Right where you're seated. Right now. You believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth and he'll save you. Let's pray.